Pray with me, Father, I resonate with these words. Why really should we gain from Christ's reward? He deserves it. But we know this, that His wounds have paid for us. And so we pray that since He lives to intercede for us, that we might be saved to the uttermost, that You would speak to us and You would speak to us all that is true, all that Christ has done uh, that would enable us to be people to uh, declare your praises. Please work that in us. Open our eyes, open our minds, our hearts. If there's any resistance at all, Father, to this word, at me or any, any of us, I pray that you overcome it uh, so that you can be glorified, that your word can show itself powerful, even in our lives, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, please turn to Hebrews in chapter 8. I want to read, uh, beginning with verse 6. Hebrews in chapter 8, verses 6 through 13, please. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that, covenant, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, <clears throat> Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. A way I want to draw your attention this morning to the last little piece of verse 10, uh, where the author of Hebrews says, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Um, We realize that this is a piece of a quote from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. And it's the author of Hebrews' hope in quoting it that it will give us hope. Hope that will enable us uh, to persevere in faith. It is by faith and patience, as he says, that we would be ones who inherit the promises. So that's his, that's his reason for, for giving us this bit of information where God says in the new covenant uh, that he will be uh, their God and that they shall be uh, his people. Now, Again, if I could just review very quickly to catch us up. There's a need for a new covenant uh, because the old covenant required it, really. It required it in a number of different ways. The point here is it required a new covenant. The old covenant required a new one because there was a fault in the old covenant. Now, you'll notice again, as we've mentioned the last couple of weeks, that the fault wasn't in God, and the fault wasn't in the promises of God, and the fault wasn't in the faithfulness of God, but the fault was in the people. Because this covenant, that is, this binding 
agreement that God makes with people, various covenants, but this covenant with Israel, God makes this binding agreement with Israel that he will be faithful to all that he promises and they must be faithful to him. That was the problem. They weren't faithful to him. And the covenant is stipulated in such a way that if they would be uh, faithful to all that was in this covenant, then they would be blessed by God. And if they weren't faithful to all that was in this covenant, they would be cursed by him. Since they weren't faithful, they were cursed. That was the problem. And the problem was, was in their own hearts. And so God brings a new covenant. And the, the newness, first and foremost, of this new covenant is Jesus. We mustn't ever forget that. I know you'd think, well, we shouldn't as Christians forget Jesus. But, 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 but we can sort of skip that because it's old hat to us in a sense. Forgive me, Jesus. Uh, it can be old hat seeming to us that that's the obvious answer, Jesus. So it must be different than that. But it isn't different than that. Because God in his grace brings this new covenant in Jesus. So Jesus takes our place in it. And he takes our place in it at every turn. He takes our place in it as the faithful one. And so he's the one who's faithful. We couldn't be, so he is. So our trust is in him. So he merits the covenant blessing. Because he's faithful to God's covenant. He does everything in it. He perfectly obeys it. He says, I've come to do the will of my Father. My food and drink are to do his will. To please him and all of that. To glorify him. And so he does that perfectly. But we mustn't ever forget that he does that for us. As our representative. The very one who, who earns then the blessings of the covenant. But he does that for us. So as we trust in him, we're recipients of the blessings of the covenant, not the curse of the covenant. And not only that, he actually takes upon himself, as we know, the curse of the covenant. He takes our sin, even, upon himself and pays that penalty. So for us entirely, Jesus is the very one who is the covenant keeper. And so in him, we receive the covenant blessings. He's the source of the covenant blessings for us. He's the very ground of the covenant blessings for us. We mustn't ever forget that, that everything we receive from God by way of blessing is because of Jesus. Uh, he is the covenant keeper. The fault of the old covenant was that it depended upon the faithfulness of the people. They were unfaithful. The blessing of the new covenant, first and foremost, is Jesus, for he is the covenant keeper, and we trust in him. And so then we sit in these covenant blessings. And he delineates them. Uh, the author of Hebrews does as he quotes the prophet Jeremiah. And, and last Sunday we, we saw this very first foundational one where he says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And so not only do we receive the covenant blessings from Jesus, but part of that covenant blessing through him is that God changes our hearts, enabling us then to be faithful. This, again, the newness of this covenant over the old. This is the blessing of the Holy Spirit who comes and gives us new life. You remember the prophet Ezekiel spoke of it. I'll take out their heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within them and cause them to walk in my statutes. So the blessing of the new covenant is that Jesus has come and fulfilled it. And in so fulfilling it, he goes into heaven and he sends the spirit to come upon all those who are in him. 
in this covenant and we receive the very blessing of a changed heart. Now we're inclined towards God as opposed to being disinclined towards Him. All on the basis of Jesus. All on the basis of God's wonderful work in us by the Holy Spirit. And we're not only inclined towards Him in such a way as to believe in Him, but we're inclined in Him in such a way to follow Him and to continue to persevere in faith and thus be faithful to continue to walk with God. And when not, to be faithful to confess our sins and to be forgiven that this relationship continues to go on and it continues to grow and He continues to work in us and all of that. Now we know that this covenant promise that comes to us in Jesus, that He'll put His law upon our minds and write it on our hearts, begins with this work of the Holy Spirit and grows in us, but it really doesn't come to fruition until uh, we meet the Lord face to face. And then the Scripture says that when we see Him, we will be as He is. And so still there's the struggle with sin. Still there's, there's the need for confession. Still uh, there's this fight of faith. But we know, because this covenant promise and the new covenant is true, that we will be faithful and that we will persevere to the end again. All because of Jesus. What I want to take up today is this covenant promise wherein God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. And I want us to ask the question, as we asked last Sunday about the previous one, what's that really mean? If you're a Christian, and this new covenant then is true of you, that is to say that you're related to God through Jesus, that is, you're related to God through this new covenant, where Christ has come, and He's been faithful for you, you've trusted in Him, uh, your hearts are inclined towards Him, uh, what does it mean then that God is your God? And that you're his person. And what does that mean for us even collectively? That we as a company of God's people belong to him. That he is our God. And that we are uh, his people. You might say, but isn't God everybody's God? I mean, isn't he God? I mean, if he's the only one true and living God, then how can there be any other God? Is God really saying through this that he's the God of some and not the God of others? that he's the God of some and the others can have their own God and that's okay. Well, of course. He isn't saying that at all. Because there is a sense in which God is everybody's God because he's God. There's a great story, uh, incident that took place in the Old Testament that I, 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 I go back to in my own mind a great deal. I won't give you all the history, but it was in ancient Israel in time when ancient Israel wasn't doing so good and they were in battle with the Philistines their arch enemies, and the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God. You can find this in 1 Samuel chapter 5. The Ark of God. And, and, and since the Ark of God, in a sense, was the very dwelling place of God among his people, they assumed that their God had conquered the God of the Israelites. And so they took the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, and they put it in their temple next to the God Dagon the statue that was there. So if you can picture this, there's, the, there's Dagon, the statue of this God, and there's the Ark of God there. The next morning, when they woke up, they went in, and they found the, the statue Dagon on its face before the Ark of God. So they propped him back up. Not, I guess, seeing the irony of having to prop your God back up 
that would not bring me a great deal of assurance. Oh, God, let me help you there for just a moment. Put you back on your throne. Um, And the next morning when they woke up, they came in and they found not only was Dagon face down, if you will, at least body down before the ark of God, but its hands had been cut off and its head had been cut off, meaning this God before God had no strength. This God before God had no wisdom. And that's the way God is. And that's just simply true. That every so-called God in the universe and every person who he or she themselves might consider themselves to be autonomous from God, no one is. That all of us find ourselves, will find ourselves, submitting to him in some sense. Those for whom he is not their God, that is, for whom they have not voluntarily, joyfully submitted to him, they will find themselves judged by him. And so in that sense, God is everybody's God. But there's a different sense here. God is saying, I'm going to take for myself the people for whom I will be their God. And they will be my people, meaning I will bless them with all the covenant blessings that, 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 that I've promised. And they'll be the recipients of all these covenant blessings which I've promised. And they will be my people, that is, that they will bow the knee to me joyfully, voluntarily. They will bow the knee to me in such a way uh, that will glorify me. They will worship me. I'll have for myself such a people. Now this isn't a new idea to the author of Hebrews and it's not a new idea even to the prophet Jeremiah. This has been the very idea of God from the very beginning. If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and and God creates Adam and Eve, uh, why? So that they might be fruitful and multiply. Why? So that God might have for himself a people to whom He could be their God and they could be His people. And you know how that took place. God said, if you're going to be mine, it means you're going to submit to me and it means that therefore I'm going to be the one to define good and evil. And so He said, you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because you're not the one to define good and evil. Only I am the one who defines good and evil. Well, they ate of the tree, as you know, thinking themselves to be like God. They set themselves up as a rival God against Him. And so... They were cursed, banished from his presence. Now you remember that God then made a promise to say that one would come even from the seed of this woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Why? Because God was determined for his own glory to have for himself a people who he would be their God and they would be his. And Noah then comes along and everything is horrible by that time as you know and so he saves this family, Noah's family, through the ark and all of that. They come out of the ark, this family then, to be a people for God's possession. But, but you know how that goes and things deteriorate again. So much so that God has to separate people by way of language. And so there isn't a people at that moment in time to be his. And then he shows up on the scene with this man, Abraham, who becomes Abraham. And he makes great promises to Abraham, to Abraham that, 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 that he will be uh, Abraham's God and We read in Genesis in chapter 17, for instance, in verse 1, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. That is, I want you to be mine. I want you to walk before me and I want you to be blameless before me. That's what my my people are. They're people who walk before me blameless. They don't rebel against me. 
but they submit to me, if you're going to be mine, that I may make, a co- make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly, meaning multiply ones like you who will walk before me uh, blameless. Then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and, shall be, uh, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham. Your name shall be called Abraham because I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God's promising Abraham, listen, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be the very God that blesses you and those like you who walk blamelessly before me. And that promise was reiterated over and over again. And then we come uh, to Moses. And Moses, you remember, was fulfilling a prophecy of God because God had promised, told Abraham that his offspring would be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and then God would deliver them. And so Moses is, 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 is the very one called to do just that. And so when, Moses, when God speaks to Moses, he says to them, this is Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. God's saying, listen, I'm going to be your God, and the way that I'm going to show you that I'm your God is that I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to release you from your captives. I'm going to conquer your enemies. And I'm going to be your God. And no one's going to be able to thwart me in this. And then as God describes his people in Exodus in chapter 19, uh, he says this, verse 5. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Imagine that. God saying, you're going to be my treasured possession. You're going to be the very ones in the very face of the earth that I will prize above all others. And you're the very ones I'll keep for myself just for the purpose of making me happy. Just for pleasing me. I mean, all the earth belongs to God. And he says, I'm just going to take you. And you're going to be mine like none other. You're going to be my treasured possession. Uh, you'll be a kingdom of priests that is all of you, each one of you will have access to me to live in my very presence. That's what a priest does. He lives in the presence of God. He says, I'm going to live in my very presence. You're going to be a holy nation, that is a nation set apart from all the other nations of the world, simply to be holy, to walk blamelessly before me. In all of this, God promises his very presence among them to live Right among them. For instance, in Leviticus in chapter 26 and verse 11, God says to Moses, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and, you and, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. God's going to live amongst them. And, and you remember what God did. He, he says, I want you to build this tent. I want you to build this tabernacle. I'm going to live in the most holy place of that and put me right in the center of the camp, and I'm going to live among the people. And when they want me, they should come here. And they'll go through priests and they'll make sacrifices and all of that because you're not holy 
and I'm holy, and for me to live in your midst, then we need to go through this. I won't take your life, but I'll take the life of a sacrifice, and the priest will represent you before me. But always there's this promise that you're going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And then God comes uh, to David, King David, and he makes covenant with him in that sense to rule, he says, uh, forever and ever um, from his throne. And David remarks like this as God says that his son Solomon will build a temple, this very dwelling place of God. He says to him, Therefore you are great, O Lord God. This is Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 21. Therefore you are great, o, o, o Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name, and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself, a nation and his gods. He said, Listen, you are our God. There we were stuck in Egypt, but you came and bought us out. You redeemed us out. You defeated all their gods and you conquered in such a way as to deliver us. Who else in the face of the earth has a God like you? But still we know that the people were unfaithful to God. They weren't faithful to His covenant. They did not follow after Him. They did not love Him and honor Him as, as God. And the prophets came along and, and they continued to say, if you don't if you aren't faithful to God, He's going to leave you. That's the curse of the covenant. The curse of the covenant is God will leave you. His presence won't be with you. You'll be vulnerable to hell. Now you know what happens. The prophet Ezekiel gives a scene where God leaves His temple. And the temple is destroyed. Oh, it's rebuilt, but never to its former glory. The people come back to Jerusalem, but never in the kind of glory that they're anticipating. And then one day, this baby comes on the scene. This baby grows up, whose name is Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus. In fact, one day he looks at the temple. With all the people around him, he says, If you destroy this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it. And they thought he was crazy. It took them years, decades, centuries to build this temple. How could they destroy it and he rebuild it? But the Apostle John sneaks in this little word that says, now he was speaking of his body. Because he himself, not that building there, he himself was the very presence of God. He himself was God with us. He himself was the very temple of God. And if you destroy that temple, kill it, it'll raise back up in three days. And not only that, the way that the Apostle Peter understands it is like this. Turn to 1 Peter and chapter 2. See how quick it is to get through the whole Bible? 1 Peter and chapter 2. And verse 4. I've already read some of this in your responsive reading. In fact, you've already sung my whole sermon. First Peter in chapter 2 verse 4 as you come to him that is Jesus as you come to him a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ you see in Jesus we are the dwelling place of God 
we are being built up individually, collectively, stone upon stone, person upon person, redeemed heart upon redeemed heart, in order to be this very spiritual temple of God, the very dwelling place of God. A spiritual house. And that's so true. I mean, it's, as Jesus speaks to us, remember when he gave the Great Commission that we were to go into all the world and preach the gospel and so forth and so on, he ends that by saying, I will be with you always. He says, I'm going to make my dwelling place right with you. You don't have to look for me. I'll be right there. In fact, when Jesus speaks to his disciples before his crucifixion, John chapter 14, verse 15, he puts it like this. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The very spirit of God dwelling with you, us, and in you and us. The very presence of God. I remember when I first revealed this to my children one by one. I did it because I knew their reaction. Each one of them then went to the mirror and went, (laughs) you know, where is he? He's with us spiritually. Feel him, touch him, smell him and all that. But he's here, he says, within us, so close to us that we're in him and he in us. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I'll come to you yet a little while, yet a little while in the world will, not, will, will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he will be loved uh, by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Uh, Judas, not Iscariot, said, to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. I don't know if you think about yourself like this day by day. You should, I should, we need to, because this is the truth. We are the very dwelling place of God. He lives with us and in us. That's why Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? That is, wherever you go, God goes. Whatever you attach yourself to, there's a sense in which you're attaching yourself and God to that. Because he's in you. And this is a a plural you. Can't tell that in English. But it's a plural you. That is, collectively together, we're the the very temple of God. Then in chapter 6, he uses a singular to tell us that we're individually the temple of God as well. Chapter 6, verse 19 of 1 Corinthians. He says, For you do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. You whom you have from God. You're not your own, for you've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So we belong to Him. And then finally, and this will be our last jumping around, back to 1 Peter in chapter 2, verse 9. Here's how he puts it. 
And if you were paying attention as I read through Exodus, especially Exodus 19, you'll hear the echo. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What it means, you see, for us to be his people, for God to be our God, means that we're a chosen people. Now that, of course, is mysterious, and that, of course, is amazing. Now, I understand the logic of it. I understand how the only way that I could be God's is if he initiated that. Because in my sinful condition, I won't. I understand how it is that in my sinful condition, I'm unwilling to come to him. And he must move first in my heart in order to enable me. He must first, as Ezekiel says, take out my heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh and put his spirit within me and enable me and all of that. I understand that in my head. I understand that, that, that he's the one who's sovereign over all things and, and that he's the one who chooses this people to be his. What amazes me is that I'm one of those. And a little expression that now we use in wartime applies here, and I sit in shock and awe that I belong to God that he's chosen me. All I know is, it had nothing to do with me. All I know is, that I'm no better than any other. All I know is, it wasn't on the basis of my righteousness, or my goodness, or any of that. The Apostle Paul, I think, in trying to, trying to come to grips with why it is, that he was a chosen one as well, said, it must be because my being a believer, proves that God can save anybody. Because I was a murderer, and a persecutor of the church, he says. But it isn't arbitrary. It isn't just a flip of the coin. It is based on God's goodness, and God's mercy, and God's justice, and God's righteousness, and His love. And most especially, His wisdom. He will always do the right thing. He'll always make the right choice. And all I can do is rejoice in that. All I can do is say, all right, I get it. I'm one God you've chosen before the creation of the world to be yours. So he says, you're a chosen people. That's how you got here. He says, you are a royal priesthood. The new covenant has come. And in this new covenant means all of you live in my very presence, says God, just as a priest does. We don't need another person to intercede for us. We have Jesus. That's all we need. And we then, individually and collectively, live in the very presence of God. We're never out of the presence of God. We live in the very presence of God. We are a holy nation, meaning that we've been set apart by God as a company of people, individually and collectively, to be holy, to follow after Him. He says that we're a people for His own possession. That is, the very people on the face of the earth that exist for the pleasure of God to make Him happy. And here's the purpose of all that. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. What do people do who belong to God? What does it mean that He is our God and that we are His people? It means that we're the people who know the excellencies of God. And that it's our calling, our lives now, 
to show it forth, to proclaim it. We sang the song as we began. I sing this all the time. It's one of the songs I sing while I'm running on the treadmill. It keeps me alive. But I, I sing it uh, as a prayer, really. I sing it. I walk through all my children. I walk through my wife, myself, and the congregation. And I sing that we would, I, we would be people that, who could tell out from the very depths of our souls the greatness of the Lord. Because that means if we can do that, it means we must know the greatness of the Lord. We must have experienced the greatness of the Lord. And if we're believers in Christ, we have experienced the greatness of God, His excellencies, to come and to take us to be His, to come and to, and to change our hearts that we can believe, to come and, and put His Spirit within us that we might walk in His ways, to come and to dwell among us in His midst, to deliver us from, from our sin, to deliver us from all the gods that held us captive, to deliver us from all of the resistance that we had towards Him. He did that. And it's ours now to live that and to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the same God who called the people in the days of Moses to be his has called us as well. And in those days, he says, if you're going to be my people, if I'm going to be your God, here's how it goes. Don't have any other gods before me because I'm God. You're going to be the one group of people on the face of the earth who get that. You're going to be the one group of people on the face of the earth who understand that. You're going to be the one group of people who bow to me joyfully, recognizing that I'm God and you'll have no other gods before me. There's no other person, no other philosophy, no other thoughts that you'll look to to define you as to who you are. You'll look to me. And you'll come to me and say, God, who am I? Who am I to be? You'll look to no one else to direct you. You'll come to me and say, what am I to do? You'll look to me to, to be the very one in whom you'll rejoice and to find your delight. You'll look to none other. You'll have no other gods before me. So when the God of the American dream shows up in your life and says, listen, here's how you're to live life. All you need is more. If you have more and you're growing up the corporate ladder and you're getting more and you're accumulating more, then trust me, the American dream says, you've made it. All is well. And every time we say, no, that isn't true. That isn't true. My security is not in what I've accumulated. It's not in what I've had. It's not in people's view of me. My security is in the fact that Christ died for me. My security is in the fact that Christ lived for me. That's my security. And when that's true, you see, we say no to the God of the American dream. We say yes to God. And by trusting in Him, then we're declaring His excellencies. We say, no, this is better than that. If I have none of that, and I have this, I have it all. When the God of humanism comes to us and says, listen, you're the measure of all things. You can do as you please because you're a human being. And you get to define what life is. You get to direct your own life. Uh, it's all right to divorce. It's all right to have an abortion. It's all right to have sex with people, not your spouse. It's all right for people of the same gender to be sexually intimate. Uh, it's all right to lie about your life. It's all right to take from others. It's all right to, 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 to uh, express your anger. It's all right to, to live in unforgiveness and bitterness and hatred and all of that. Because you have a right to that. Because you are the measure of all things. 
But when we say, no, that isn't true, I won't live that way. I'm going to trust God. He's the one who's defined me. He's the one who is to submit to Him and to reflect Him. And I'm to love as He's loved. I'm to forgive as He's forgiven. I'm to be patient as He's been patient. I'm to live in such a way that will honor marriage. I'm to live in such a way as to honor marriage as God has defined it. I'm to live in such a way as to honor life and not take it. I'm to live in such a way that will be truthful. I'm to live in such a way that will be happy for when others have and I don't, even when they have what I want. I won't covet, but I'll be thankful, pleased for them that they do because I will trust that God will meet my needs. My faith is in Him. When the God of moralism comes to us and says, listen, all you have to do is be good enough. I mean, if you're good enough, how could God be upset with that? Well, when we say, I appreciate that, and that really is true. If I could be good enough, God would be pleased. But I know myself, and I know my own heart, and I know God's holiness, and I'm simply not good enough. Therefore, I'm going to cast my trust. Therefore, I'm going to cast my rest upon Christ. We declare his excellency. When the temptation comes for us to lust, and we turn away with pure thoughts through the power of Christ, we declare His excellencies. When the temptation comes to be angry and we turn away from that and, and, and we're patient, we declare the excellence of God. When, 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 when the temptation comes for revenge and we forgive, we declare the excellencies of Christ. When the temptation comes to be greedy and we give, we declare the excellencies of Christ. When the temptation comes to be apathy, it comes as apathy to turn the other way when we see people in need and we go to them and help and sacrifice, we declare the excellencies of Christ. So we do this day in and day out, but our thoughts and our lives, why? Because we have been the very ones chosen by God to live in His presence to be set apart from all others, to be holy in His sight, to be His very treasured possessions, so that we might declare the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into this marvelous light. And so when God says, listen, in this new covenant as believers in Christ, I am your God, and you are my people. It means that we are the very ones on the face of the earth who live knowing that God is with us. We don't have to be anxious. He says every time you get anxious, just look at the flowers and look at the birds. I'm sovereign over those. The flowers are pretty, the birds are fine. And even when a bird falls from the air, I know about that. And I'm still taking care of that bird. And so even when you take a dive, I'm with you. I'm with you. So you don't need to be afraid, even when you're in South Florida, even when you're in New Orleans, even when you're in Pakistan, even when you're in California. I don't think anything bad's happening at the moment in California, but something will. Right? Or, or Kansas with tornadoes, or wherever you live. You don't have to be afraid when something attacks your body as foreign as something called cancer. You don't have to be afraid. You can be still. And you can know that I'm God. Not just that I'm God, but that I'm your God. And that I'm with you. 
and that I dwell in your very presence. And this didn't happen because there's a hole in me. This happened because I'm God. And thus you can trust me that I'll work it good. You can trust me that I'm still with you. You can trust me that I'll protect you all the way to the end, meaning glory. Trust me. I am your God and you are mine. Let me ask you to stand for the benediction. I'm not going to pray. I'm going to sneak this on you. And let me read a passage of Scripture about the benediction that I'm going to use because this is the benediction for people who belong to God. It was given to Moses so that he could give to his son's son Aaron, Aaron and his sons. And let me read. I'll pronounce it in a minute, but let me read the passage. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And this is what I want you to hear before you receive that benediction. God said, So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. As one about whom it is said, God is your God and you are His. It means that His name rests upon you. Now when the scripture says that His name rests upon you, it means that the very presence, the very person, the very character of God rests upon you. Now I don't know what that looks like if we can see things in the Spirit. (laughs) Take away all this and see. I don't even know what that feels like, except right now, I've got to be honest with you, i got goosebumps. I don't always have goosebumps, by the way, but at the moment, I do. I may not have goosebumps in the second service, so I'll have to refer back to the first service when I did. But right now, I honestly do. But I want us, as God's people, to remember that. That His name is upon us. His presence is with us. His character, all that He's promised, He will do. And I want you to receive this benediction. The response to the benediction, as you'll see in the bulletins, is this. I want you to repeat after. The Lord is our God, and we are His people. Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's people said, The Lord is our God and we are His people. Hallelujah. You are dismissed.